Season three of More Train, Less Pain rolls on. In this second episode, I sit down with John Pope, founder of Building the Elite, a company with the sole focus of preparing military and tactical athletes for selection programs using the most up-to-date and effective training strategies possible. At first glance, this may seem like an odd conversation to have nested in the season that's about chronic and persistent pain. However, our intent for having John on was to show just how much connective tissue exists between the strategies that tactical athletes employ to get through grueling physical tasks and the strategies athletes in chronic pain can leverage to get through life, training, and continue to push the boundaries of their fitness and physical existence. We discuss mindfulness, segmenting, compartmentalizing, self-talk, and learned optimism, all in a quest to leave you with an improved understanding of what military preparation has to offer athletes of all types. If you're enjoying this season of More Train, Less Pain, Michelle and I would certainly appreciate it if you consider posting a screenshot of your favorite episode to social media or simply telling a friend or colleague about the podcast. We'd like to keep doing this for as long as we can, and getting more plays and downloads is a vital component of making that happen. And now, on to the show. More Train, Less Pain. Welcome back. I am here with my good friend and founder of Building the Elite, John Pope. John, how the hell are you? I'm great, man. Excited to be here. Very, very happy to have you. Very excited to uh, dive into hopefully what's going to be a a fairly wide-ranging discussion. Uh, Before we get going, if anybody out there has been living under a rock, uh, tell the people a little bit about who you are and what you currently do. Yeah, so I am the co-founder of Building the Elite. So we published a book uh, by the same name about four years ago. It's like a 500-page textbook tome on human performance. Uh, Me and my business partner, our specialty is preparing individuals for special operations selection programs. So if you want to be a Navy SEAL or Special Forces, something like that. Um, And those programs traditionally have an extremely high failure rate, uh, upwards of 80%. And we've been very successful preparing individuals for that. And so after doing that for a decade, we wrote a book on it. And that's what that book is about. Um, And the whole goal was to kind of demystify human performance, especially the mental side of it and how that interacts with human performance. Those courses are specifically, while they're very physically challenging and difficult, you do not have to be that particularly Uh, amazing at anything. In fact, you're kind of the ultimate generalist. You're just mediocre at all physical outputs, Uh, but they are, it's mentally and emotionally very, very difficult. And the overwhelming majority of candidates do not fail something physically. They quit um, because they cannot just keep going. And it's day after day, week after week of ongoing stressors that eventually break them down. And so again, that's what we wrote the book on is how to combine, how to prepare physically, but more so how to prepare your mind for those kinds of uh, challenges. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think uh, especially kind of the last few things that you mentioned there are of particular interest to Michelle and I, you know, this season, what we're trying to do is focus in on 
training and improving fitness in the, in the context of chronic and persistent pain. And although there might not seem like there's a high degree of Venn diagram overlap there, I think that, you know, uh, you and I have known each other for at this point, like the better part of a decade. And I've heard you talk a lot about mental skills training and kind of uh, mindset preparation, mindset modification. And there just seems like there might be a good amount of connective tissue worth exploring between sort of like the overall, you know, topic of this season, and then some of the things that you're having your selection candidates uh, go through or try to improve upon. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a huge connection. Like you just, you're never going to make it through one of those courses without being, I mean, in, in an extreme amount of fatigue and pain, like sleep deprivation is the norm. Uh, you are going to find your physical failure point. It's not if, it's when, it does not matter how fit you are. Like you could be able to do a thousand pushups and then the instructors will just keep going until you, they want to see what happens in your mind when you hit that failure point. It's not about how fit you are. As long as you hit the standards, it's about seeing how you tolerate those degrees of stress. So yeah, uh, pain and fatigue are inescapable in those courses. And so a big part of what we work on is how to navigate those skillfully uh, so that you can continue moving forward, even when you feel like you have absolutely nothing left physically. And while you know, your average person isn't going to be in that situation. The same underlying skills that work for them uh, help you navigate just daily life and injuries and training and just moving through uh, difficult situations and, and injuries and continue moving forward. Yeah, I think I think and, and we'll get into specific kind of tactics and strategies later in the episode. But what you had just mentioned with that reframe of it's not a question of if but when in regards to failure I think that I, when I'm talking through this with my clients, with my patients, that tends to be a very helpful reframe in the context of pain, where it's, hey, pain is not this, let's stop everything, let's put everything in your life on pause until we figure it out. Probably something is going to hurt at some point in time, and maybe something kind of hurts most of the time. If you learn to treat that as something that is inevitable and that can be understood and managed as opposed to something that should be avoided at all costs, you end up becoming a much better athlete. And uh, frankly, if you generalize that, like a much better human being. Yeah, I mean, it, pain is a complex emotion, right? And so it's like any other emotion in life. You're just, you're not going to avoid it. Good emotions, bad emotions. And so... Uh, learning how to manage that skillfully. Um, and if you want to go do difficult things and push yourself physically, it's just inevitable. It's just a part of the deal. Um, and you can learn how to deal with it very, very well so that you can be in pain without suffering, right? Like you can separate the physical sensation from what is happening in your mind and you cannot amplify it. You can normalize it and just make it a normal part of your experience and understand and like learn how to navigate it well to where you can differentiate between pain that is unproductive and is probably leading to actual physical um, long-term issues and something <laughs> where, you know, it's the right strategy is to adjust and pain that is just normal and a part of the process um, and inescapable and not, not needing to make that into a, uh, a big deal, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, one, one of the things that you really come across a lot in some of the chronic pain literature is like the, the emotion of pain versus the sensation of nociception and getting people to differentiate between the two. And I think, you know, we we come as human beings right out of the box with those two things inextricably linked. And through an evolutionary lens, this makes sense. If something hurts, we should deal with it. Like we are, you know, under more danger of getting chased down by the tiger 
or whatever it was. Um, however, it's like that's going to be over leveraged towards keeping us safe and not really aimed in any direction of enabling us to have any semblance of quality of life, especially in 2023. So excited to get into kind of some of these, like I said, tactics, strategies with you and just see where that crossover lies. Yeah. And I think an important thing to note there that you kind of brought up, it's what's your baseline? You know, um, we live in a society where we're very, very comfortable and that's both a blessing and a curse. And the great part of that is that we're comfortable, but the downside of that is our baseline tolerance for discomfort is extremely low. Right. And so oftentimes any deviation, like if we think of the continuum of experiences and, and if your baseline is a one and the worst experience you've ever felt or pain or discomfort is a three or a four, a small deviation becomes a big deal, right? Like I stub my toe and I think I, I can't walk for the rest of the day and I have to sit on the couch and do nothing, right? Whereas if you like rewind and think back to most of human experiences over the last, you know, tens of thousands of years, uh, their baseline was much higher, right? The range of experiences was much more extreme. And so part of normalizing that range, it gives you a lot of freedom to where you can now experience more intense sensations and you have a much larger range of experience. And now normal pain that gets up in that five, six, seven range on the zero to 10 is no longer a big deal. Um, and life just becomes much easier to navigate. It's just like emotions, right? If the hardest thing you've ever done is, is just not very difficult, right? Like we, there's a lot of research on this, interestingly, with like teenagers and life experiences um, and this is why shielding your children from difficult experiences is the worst thing you can possibly do because they're greater the range of experiences. Then now when their girlfriend dumps them, it's just not that huge of a deal on the big deal chart, right? Um, and so pain is is, is no different. It's, it's the same type of thing. Yeah, it's kind of like a, like the worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. It's it, it's going to be the 10 out of 10, regardless of the absolute rating of that judged against the, all the remaining human beings alive right now. <laughs> yes. And, and it's it's interesting. And you and I have talked about this uh, personally, I know, but like it's, it's just kind of interesting that I think some of the happiest, most well-adjusted people in their 30s and 40s are people that either went through some pretty dark, pretty challenging uh, times earlier in their lives or in their 20s, or physically regularly put themselves through things that are incredibly arduous. Because it just seems like that, uh, to your point, sort of redefines what the top end of that continuum might be. So that if they lose a job, if they you know get out of a relationship, if, if something changes dramatically, they register it as the four out of 10 that it actually is versus the 11 out of 10 that they feel it to be. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think that was honestly the best thing that ever happened to me. Sorry, my dog. Okay, stop. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, when I was young, so in, in college, I played baseball and I think I had five surgeries in like four years um, and was just a wreck, like got out of baseball and I'd had some head trauma as well with some concussions. Uh, and then it took a while to unwind that and eventually found... PRI and had some behavioral optometry done and that unwound a lot of things, but I was just in chronic pain and beat up and really injured um, and could not do the things that I wanted to do. Um, and so it was very difficult from, you know, everyone loses their identity as an athlete at some point that was challenging, but I was also in a lot of physical pain, um, went through 
the surgeries, which are never fun. Um, and it kind of just set me off on this path of appreciating what most people don't tend to appreciate until they get later in life and injuries and, and pain becomes more a normal part of their life. I was very, I had lived in that world for a long time and been through those experiences. Uh, so I appreciated that from a very young age, which is why I started, I think probably similar to you is kind of obsessing over movement and um, this bigger picture and changing my relationship with that, trying to understand what it really meant, what pain meant um, and the importance of training intelligently. And that's ultimately what, how I met Craig um, is I knew the psych part of it was Craig is my business partner. Um, and he was Navy special operations guy. Uh, and that's how I actually eventually started working with military. Cause that's not my background. Um, but that's how I met Craig is I knew that it was a area of my life that I wanted to understand more. And I found Craig and his writing was very good and it connected with it. And he had had these intense experiences, but on a different, completely different avenue of life, right? I had been through all these surgeries and these injuries and Craig had done the special operations route, gone through that experience, but we had both been through this difficult process. Um, and so it was very interesting to kind of run into him and get that perspective. And that's how we ended up working going forward. Right on. And that the rest is history, I suppose. <laughs> um, uh, wondering if you could say a little bit more uh, before we start talking about um, kind of some of the things wrapped up with building the elite and special forces preparation. You you personally, I think, have a so somewhat interesting story, uh, maybe not in incredibly novel, but... Um, you know, I, when I met you, and this was probably seven or eight years ago, I think we met at the PRI course, but um, I remember having coffee with you before I started to see some patients out of uh, then your gym, which <laughs> interestingly is is now where my physical therapy practices is located once again, Ethos Colorado Training Center. Um, but at the time you were, uh, you were the owner and kind of the face of the operation. And I was struck at like, you know, you were incredibly well-read and knowledgeable about a lot of the things that we like to learn about then, right? Programming, some PRI concepts. Uh, but you were also like freaking jacked and you did cool things. Like I think the, the, the second conversation I ever had with you, I was telling you that um, my girlfriend at the time and I had done like a 13-mile cross-country ski tour to like the base of the bells. And I showed you a picture and you were like, ah. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I've snowboarded off those. And I was like, that's an that's an option? People do that? <laughs> so I, I guess what I'm trying to tee up for here is talk a little bit about how you came from kind of oft-injured collegiate <laughs> athlete struggling to make sense of athletic identity and where, you know, exercise, movement, fitness fit into your life through that journey, um, through the point that I met you to, to where you currently are, which, you know, as I understand it, is still a pretty, pretty high level of physical activity and overall performance. Yeah. Okay. So bullet points here. We went through all the surgeries and stuff. After that, um, I found PRI and that was very helpful for me. And that started unwinding some things for me. Um, but along the way, like one of the primary principles that you can always do something. So even when I was injured and messed up all the time, I just figured out like, I can't just sit here and do nothing. So I need to figure out what I can train. Right. Um, so I remember having shoulder surgery and like three days later, I was doing hip lifts in the gym and lunges and things like that. And I was training the other side of my body. And then I did a lot of aerobic work. I basically figured out what are the things that I can always do. And that was always one of my mindsets. And the approach that is really, really helpful. And so even as I went through this process of all these injuries, 
I was never giving up the base that I had built so long to build, right? And so then as I started to unwind some of these movement limitations through PRI and then work with other people, it allowed me to um, like move very quickly from being in chronic pain and beat up because I had never just given up. I never just gave in to that thing. Um, and then a big part of it was differentiating good versus bad pain. Like I literally threw my arm and blew that thing up and just kept pitching. And, um, you know, I was so, you know, like air quotes, mentally tough, like goal fixated on being the thing that I would ignore intense sensations to my detriment. Um, and part of this was learning how to navigate that more skillfully and understanding the type of pain that I could be in where it could be very uncomfortable, but stop before I got to the point where I was going to literally blow up a joint or disintegrate something, a tissue that was, should be there for a good reason. Um, yeah. So, uh, PRI was a big part of it. Changing my relationship with, uh, pain was a big part of it. And then always doing the things that I could do and trying to figure out what the limiting factor was. Like part of this has become healthier as well. Right. Um, a big part of our pain perception and how we hold tension and move through life is how healthy we are overall. Right. Um, and so I, had to learn how to dial in my sleep. A lot of it was the mental and emotional game, getting a lot better at managing myself, uh, working through the stuff that everyone has in their life, right? Like uh, whatever baggage you're carrying around, that played a big role as well in getting my nutrition dialed in. And all of that plays a big role in your pain perception. Like pain, a big part of it is, like you said, nociception. And being more emotionally regulated is a big part of that as well. Oftentimes chronic pain, sufferers or people who have a lot experience, a lot of pain, um, they are misidentifying affect or just general sensations, discomfort, unpleasantness in the body for nociception or pain. Um, and so the healthier you are, the more, the easier it is to differentiate between good pain and bad pain. So yeah, I, I guess I just kept exploring, uh, started trying to fill what the limiting factor was like, I was this big, strong guy. Right. But I had no aerobic base. Like my idea of endurance was running a mile and then I would puke and feel like I was going to die. And then, so, so, you know, I met Craig and I realized like, oh, wow, like that, that is, that's a comparison. Like I can't call myself a fit human if I can't even do that. And then my goal shifted and I wanted to explore and do more in the mountains. So then I started doing a lot of endurance work um, and I did what I could. Like I was not going to go run a marathon at that point. I was still too big, uh, really stiff, couldn't move particularly well. So I cycled. So did a lot of road biking because I could do that because it was low impact and I could handle the volume, right? Um, and then as I slowly unwound stuff more, then I could handle more hiking volume and then I could do backcountry skiing. And like one thing led to the next. And I've just always played this long game of do what I can do, learn how to manage my relationship with pain in an intelligent way to where I'm not hurting myself, but I'm still pushing myself into discomfort. Um, quite often, things never feel amazing but I've been able to avoid any significant injury after having a bunch of surgeries and be chronically injured for the last almost 15 years. I've basically been close to injury free from a, a major injury perspective. So yeah, yeah that, that's I, basically been the process. Yeah. I, th I think that's, I think that's incredibly helpful to hear. Um, I know, you know, uh, personally I've, I've, worked with you as a, as a physical therapist, I kind of know some of your 
I, you know, I, I think you move really, really well overall, but then there are some movement limitations that, um, you know, I think, I think objectively can be pretty gnarly. So even to hear that, you know, you are active as you are, despite not having this full robust movement repertoire, I think that's, that's something that I want to continue to press this season is just that, um, it's sort of a pipe dream that we have hips and shoulders that have like full internal and external rotation to some extent. Um, have you, you know, was there a gradual shift in how you thought about those things? Like, especially within the context of some of these more, you know, kind of schools of thought like PRI, FMS, SFMA, was there a moment where things were not progressing because, you know, you were maybe overly myopic with some range of motion test or it speaks that a little bit more. I think it'd have something interesting to say there. Yeah. I think the idea is that good enough, right? Like it's never going to be perfect. And that's always the litmus test is always, how do you feel after not trying to base things on some objective marker of uh, like your subjective experience is more important than what some objective test about range of motion says, like just because you don't have enough, full excursion on internal rotation in some particular joint does not mean you're guaranteed to be in pain. But if you believe that that is going to be a limitation and that's your expectation, then something most likely will not feel well. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at there, but other than like, yeah, it's like a pain's a learned response. And so a big part of it for me was unlearning fear. Like I had all these injuries and all this kind of like cooped up tension. And so a lot of it was learning like, is this my expectation to feel this way? Am I just like holding this pattern and having this expectation and then fixating on this area? Like, oh, my knee used to hurt when I descend hiking. So if I obsess over my knee and all I do is think about how's my knee feeling? How's my knee feeling? How's my knee feeling? Um, because I'm my foot doesn't move particularly well or I don't have as much internal rotation at my hip as I would like. And I obsess over that thing, then it's most likely not going to feel good. And as soon as I shifted my attention and sort of just enjoying the experience and change what my expectation was. Oftentimes that opened up a lot of bandwidth and then I could just go and experience the thing. That's part of why I started doing outdoor activities as well is I think people get like overly obsessed with fitnessing essentially and forget about the experience aspect of it. Right. And when you're in the experience, it changes a lot of different things you know, we can get into the science of it, but the biggest thing is it just changes your perception and what's happening and where your attention is focused. You're just doing the thing. You're kind of, it's easy to get into that flow state. You stop fixating on performance metrics, where your heart rate is, how fast you're moving, and you can just experience the thing and focus on other aspects of your experience. And that changes what happens in your perception. You stop obsessing over sensory information. Like it's just super boring. Like if you're sitting there running on a treadmill uh, or on a bike in the gym, you don't have anything else to distract you when you're outdoors and you're doing things or you're playing a sport and it's this open activity and you're interacting with your environment and it's visually stimulating and it's audibly stimulating that completely changes your experience. And that oftentimes is the differentiator between being able to scale and do activities and do a lot of it. Um, and just being like kind of a hamster on the wheel in the gym and everything always doesn't feel good. Yeah. I like that you described as fitnessing. I mean, cause it's, it's, it's sort of, it's that differentiation of 
doing an activity that has some kind of purpose and increased, I mean, as you, I, I think you put it quite well, like just sensory input so that the only thing that you're feeling isn't this gradual creep of increased fatigue of potentially increased nociception, um, which inevitably is going to like, you know, get people to crash into that barrier far, far sooner and probably unnecessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't really have anything to add to that. I mean, that's, that's basically it is that it's just your attention, right? Like if you're fixating your attention, that's the primary thing that we work on with our athletes. We'll talk about this later, but you have to be really skillful with the use of your attention. And if you're fixating your attention on sensory information, especially in one specific area, how fatigued you are, how tired you are, you're, you just get in these feedback loops and it amplifies the sensation that you're feeling. So you just think of it like you might have fatigue or you might have some pain, but it's a two or a three and you're turning it to a six because that's what you're obsessing over, right? Instead of shifting your attention to something else. And now that three becomes a one. It's just background noise. It's just like a little bit of discomfort. Um, and if something is really bad, your brain will let you know. But again, by getting in these areas and then that teaches you, that's now your default. That's your expectation moving forward. So now you learn to shift your attention elsewhere and not fixate on those things. Yeah, beautiful. And I, I couldn't imagine a more perfect segue to, I think, the second part of our discussion here. This season of More Train, Less Pain is brought to you by my remote fitness programming service. We've been talking a lot about navigating the minefield that is attempting to train and improve fitness while dealing with persistent pain. If you feel like this directly applies to you, it can be daunting to attempt to construct your own workouts and long-term programs. Personally, one of the best decisions I ever made was to outsource that process and hire a coach. Someone who's external to the day-to-day -day reality of being in my body and my brain that can take my preferences, feedback, and athletic goals and coalesce them into a stable, doable fitness program that I could execute. It's an honor to serve in that role for my clients and my athletes. Stop banging your head against the proverbial wall and spinning your wheels changing workouts every week. Start investing in a long-term process to discover what your body is capable of and the long-term progress that you can make. Reach out via the contact tab on timrichart.com to learn more. Now, back to the show. All right, John. So as we said, I, I think some of the personal stuff really sets the stage for these more official tactics and strategies that you and Craig advocate for your selection candidates. Um Wondering if you can tell me a little bit about kind of like how you think about mental skills preparation for these folks insofar as, you know, what they're typically bringing to the table in this regard and where the common deficits are. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say most of these individuals, like you have to be extremely committed to what you're working towards, obviously, right? If you're trying to go through the soft selection course, you're committing yourself to, years of consistent training for the prep and then going through something that is just objectively this extremely uncomfortable, difficult process. Um, and then after that, it's the job is not easy. The job is very difficult and uncomfortable and dangerous and, and all those things, right? So most of the people coming into this have a pretty good idea of what they're getting themselves into and that it's going to be very, very difficult. And so, you know, this idea of like mentally tough, um, I think in pop culture, it means something different than it does in the research uh, and research is really just means goal fixedness. Uh, but mentally tough is while it's important, you need to be fixated on the goal and be able to 
push through uh, pain and difficulty, you also need to be cognitively flexible enough to make good decisions and manage yourself effectively. And just being really tough isn't actually uh, the end all be all like that. That's great. That'll get you a certain percentage of the way there. Uh, but ultimately they need a lot more capacities or skills um, to be successful in most soft selection processes. Some, everyone, every soft selection screens for some different cognitive traits. So like, say you're going to go to SF, uh, Army Special Forces, they're very team oriented. So communication and leadership is very, very important. Um, You know, tier one, like if screens for other skills, but regardless of that, the common things here are you have to be very, very effective at managing what's happening in your mind. And that tends to be the limiting factor. Most people have these overly simplistic models of what it's going to take. They have outcomes where they're like, oh, I just, I'm going to not quit. I need to be resilient. I need to have grit. Um, I'm just going to be hard. Like those are outcomes. Like that doesn't describe a process, like a knowable, repeatable process or a set of skills that need to be there. And so the underlying skills that most people are missing, we can kind of get into this is, uh, fundamentally the, the, the primary one from the get-go is this really good control of your attention and, or mindfulness, right? Mindfulness is being able to understand what's happening in your mind. Self-awareness is kind of another facet of this. This is just understanding your tendencies or what happens in your mind, uh, generally speaking, but it's kind of retrospective. It's just understanding who you are as a human being. Um, and again, being able to capture your attention and then direct that skillfully. Like, do I need to manage what's happening in my mind? Do I need to shift my attention to externally, like just getting through this thing, this event? Um, Where does it, does it need to be broad? Does it need to be narrow? Like what needs to happen to manage myself effectively in the moment? That's always the baseline. And so that's the first thing that we work on because as soon as you have a skillful use of attention um, from that point forward, now you can start to learn to understand what is happening in your mind because you can attune to it. You can see like you use attention to figure out how you're using it, like mindfulness. Am I like in a feedback loop with negative self-talk? Am I fixating on how bad my knee hurts or how uncomfortable I am? Like what is happening in the moment in these stressful situations? And then once you have awareness, now you can change it. And once you can change it, then all the other skills come into play. And so we literally spend the first four to six weeks just uh, some, you can use things like meditation. That's great, but that's at a low stress, right? Um, That's like a resting state. And you need that capacity, but oftentimes people have that capacity, but as soon as you add stress to the equation, then that disappears, right? So we have people intentionally tune into what's happening in their mind under slowly increasing levels of stress so they can become more and more effective um, and easy situations when they're just going out for an easy run. And then as fatigue sets in, it gets more and more difficult. And there's all different types of pain and fatigue, right? Like it's always context specific. So we start this is kind of the overarching thing here is stress inoculation Um, to kind of like ring it all in is you start off, you have to be able to do something really well on low levels of stress. And then over time we apply all the rest of the skills we'll probably talk about here in a second under slowly increasing levels of stress. So stress inoculation is the overarching lens through which we do this. Yeah. And I think as you're talking, sort of a very natural format for the remainder of our discussion kind of comes to mind here, which, you know, you said mindfulness and attention. It's kind of this this one domain that people come in at the very least, like misunderstanding what that is, thinking that toughness is the end all be all. 
I'm almost envisioning, you know, there's there's probably a couple other sort of like core facets of, of things that you would like to see better developed in your selection candidates. And then I would imagine strategies for developing them. And then I think we can talk about uh, generalizing those in within the context of more general population folks with chronic pain. Does that seem like a reasonable framework? Yeah. Yeah. And then I, one other just kind of clarifying point, um, again, because I think my job here is to try to establish a case for the connective tissue and similarity between selection candidates and just kind of athletes or general population folks in chronic pain. If you had to you know, ballpark it, like what percentage of the people that you and Craig are working with come into your preparation programs with some degree of ache or pain or niggle that has been a thing for, let's say, like longer than six months? Oh, probably a hundred percent. I mean, it's just, it's part of the deal. Like in the training volumes are really high. It's, it's just, it is what it is. Pain is inescapable. If you're going to train at the volumes, these people are going to train at. So it's just, it just goes along for the ride. The, the idea is just not to let a pain or an ache become a legitimate injury. And then I'm assuming within, well, I, I was going to say within that subset, but within all of your clients, then 100%, I would assume that the the maladaptive behavior that you're probably fighting against more often than not is one of it's going to hurt. So I'm just going to push through anyway. Would I be correct in saying that? Yeah. It's just ignoring pain, right? Um, Instead of learning to skillfully manage it, right? By just like not having secondary emotions or reactions to that. So like the primary thing is the discomfort, but then what happens in your mind after that discomfort? Do does it need to lead to an emotional response or certain types of self-talk or whatever it is occurring that then amplifies that or again fixates your attention further on that sensory information? So the idea is to manage the primary sensation um, so that it it just doesn't continue to string out. The half-life of it is as short as it needs to be. Yeah, which I mean, again, and you mentioned this, but like meditation, especially like I've been um, pretty diligent with like Sam Harris's waking up app now for the past three or four months, but kind of talks about that exact concept. Whereas like the the half life of these thoughts, if we just let them be thoughts, whatever they are, you know, uh, ruminating about a breakup or a meeting or even something that you're looking forward to, like the native half life of a thought is actually incredibly short. Like it's, you know, the second you stop thinking of it, it sort of disappears. But if you start to anchor these things in with emotions, that's where we can send ourselves down these spirals of, you know, hours, days, weeks of our life um, now being kind of caught up in what that original thought was. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the cascade, right? So it's just interrupting that loop but with using your attention to shift it somewhere else. So you can notice the sensation or the thought. Um, and sometimes you want to be in your head and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you want to just focus on the task at hand. You can you can realize like, oh, I'm just like obsessing in my head about how bad this hurts. And I can literally just shift my attention to my running cadence or my breathing or my foot strike or anything else external to me that's performance oriented. And then magically the sensation turns from like, you know, an eight or a nine out of 10 on the discomfort to a six or a seven. It's still uncomfortable. It's still there. Uh, but it's no longer the primary thing in your mind that is overwhelming you. Um, and so those are where some of the other skills come into play. Do you want me to dive into those? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So I'd say the first one, this is very simple. And I think a lot of people, a lot of athletes, especially endurance athletes do this naturally. They just figure it out as segmenting. 
Um, and that's just breaking a big goal into small pieces. Um, and so if you're on a long run, you just, all you have to do is make it to the next turn to the, you know, the next corner, whatever it is, right. Uh, 10 more breaths, anything like that. Uh, and this is really helpful from a motivational standpoint, because what happens is you break this big thing that feels uh, like overwhelming into something that you can manage and predict like, oh, I know I can make it to that point. And then once you make it to that point, it's a small celebration. It's a win, right? It's now you feel like you're on track towards your goal. It gets you, shifts you into this process oriented in the moment performance accomplishing the task. And it actually, you get little releases of dopamine as you go, which helps again, like down-regulate, no susception. You actually feel less pain when you feel like you're on track with things. Um, and it shifts your attention. The primary things that ramp stress are predictability and control. So if you can shrink your world to what you can control and what you can predict, you manage your stress response. It's not that you don't want a stress response. You need it. That's how you perform. But you want to be in that ideal zone. If you're either under-responding or over-responding, then it's that's what kills people, especially in soft selections. Because what happens, it's not like any one event is that overwhelmingly bad. It's that they never end. It's that you do one event and the next event and the next event and the next event, and you never get to recover. Your sleep's always, uh, usually you're not getting that much sleep. So you just can't recover from day to day. And so it's this accumulation effect where you have too strong of a stress response. It takes a long time to recover from it. And then that bleeds into the next event. And then you're compromised. You have too strong of a stress response. And eventually you get burned out um, and you lose control of what's happening in your mind. And you're just like, your, your prefrontal cortex, your cognitive mind is just gone. Like you're swimming in so much cortisol that you can no longer use rational thought. And, you know, it doesn't matter how bad you want it at that point. Like you're just like a monkey brain. You're it's like that fight or flight. You get to the point or freeze where you start to freeze. You start to shut down. You don't have stress responses anymore. And you're just reacting emotionally. So the whole goal is to avoid that whole thing. But the point there is predictability and control. Um, and all of these mental skills we're going to talk about in some way help you manage those two factors, which keeps you in that sweet spot of stress response where you're still can strategize and adjust and stay present in your mind and change your performance as you go. Um, so the next one that we'll get into is compartmentalization. And so compartmentalization is just shrinking things down to uh, setting aside something that happened, right? So this is oftentimes what happens when a part of a race or something's not going well, right? Like, I did an event, it didn't go well, or I'm doing this workout, it just had a set and it went like crap, right? Or I am having a bad day, right? And I'm stressed out or I'm having an emotional response from something and being able to like understand what's happening in your mind, acknowledge it, let it go, set it aside, shift your attention to the task at hand is very, very important. And that allows you to not, again, let one thing cascade into the next, into the next, and the next. That's what tends to lead to issues. Can I ask a quick clarifying question? Yeah. Um, segment Like segmenting something versus compartmentalizing. So it sounds like segmenting is sort of during one task, figuring out how you're breaking that one thing into smaller things, whereas compartmentalizing would be uh, attempting to prevent the spillover, like the emotional or psychological spillover from one task to a second, uh, probably related, but not the same task. Yeah. And it can even happen during an event, right? Like say you're doing a five mile run for time, right? And your first mile run, 
first mile is just like it's not going well, right? And and then you're like fixating on it, right? You're like, oh man, I'm not feeling good. My legs feel super heavy. My breathing's off. My heart rate's up. You can kind of get into your head and just start like going downhill really, really quickly. Instead, you're like, okay, first mile's done. It doesn't matter. What do I do right now? Like, it's done. It's in the past. It's irrelevant. What what matters in this moment? What's the best decision I can make right now? Yeah, no, I, lo- I love that because I mean, the through line of a lot of the things that you mentioned seem to sort of be preventing the overreaction or underreaction to any one particular stimulus. It's like we kind of want to be in this acceptable bandwidth of being in the thing, feeling the thing without being a beholden to it or completely ignoring it. Yeah, I mean, that that's what stress inoculation is. It's It's normalizing a difficult experience, right? And then we talked about this before, like this, and this kind of will tie it back to gen pot people. And and if you intentionally seek difficult experiences at time, but learn how to normalize that, like, it's just objectively, this is very difficult. I'm going to be uncomfortable in some way. There's going to be some amount of physical fatigue or pain or combination thereof. And you learn how to normalize that. And that is like on a one to 10 scale, you could almost objectively say it's like a six or a seven. Now, when you go to the gym and you do your normal workout, like the two or three is just like, it's just not a big deal. So now you're just not in pain anymore. Like, like you do the, your normal workout at the gym and you're like, oh, that was fun. That was like, that wasn't that uncomfortable. That's just not that big of a deal anymore. Like it shrink it by increasing your horizon of what you're capable of doing and managing effectively. Now day-to-day tasks become easier, which means now you just like life becomes easier. Yeah, and I, and I could say from personal experience with uh, things related to this domain, unfortunately, that is something that needs to be upkept. And and I think yeah. specifically in in more of like a um, social domain. So I've talked about you know a bit of my personal life on this podcast before, but getting out of a close to seven year relationship and kind of like re-entering the dating pool, being single again, um, and that that initial stress response of approaching someone in real life. Of just like, this is a, sh- like, I'm going to get rejected. There's a 98% chance. But the second you overcome that initial hurdle, it's like everything else through the remainder of the day just seems a little bit easier. And I think, again, to, you know, to tie it back to uh, exercise and pain, it's like, it's like you do the hard thing and then everything else just seems a little bit more doable. However, like, you know, it's, it's bi-directional. If you stop doing the hard thing, gradually there is this creep where things start to get more and more difficult. And I think you see that with your selection candidates. I certainly see that with my chronic pain patients, but that was yeah. me taking us way off the rails. Let's get, let's get, but, back I mean, to a-, a related thing there is comfort versus happiness though. Like we're almost never happy when we're comfortable, never. Um, in most of our best moments, if you think of most of the most meaningful things in your life, they were not created through ha- through comfort. Like you're getting your degree, having a child, um, like raising your kid, that difficult job that you got, the promotion, whatever it is, like the physical challenge that you did and pursued, you're almost never comfortable in those moments, right? Like, and that is what creates the situation where you can reflect back and then meaningful. Meaning almost never happens when you're comfortable. And so ultimately that's the reason. It's not that comfort is bad. We should appreciate it when we have it, but it can't be the crutch that we fall back on. And if we become dependent on that comfort in any aspect of life, right? Socially, emotionally, whatever, then we just become vulnerable. 
Yeah, I think that that certainly resonates with me. Um, okay, so we got uh, we got segmenting, we got compartmentalization. What else comes to mind? Yeah, self talk is a big one. Um, so that's just like your internal narrative, which never ends. So anyone who's meditated knows this, right? Thoughts just come and go, um, unbidden. They're just like it's never ends. Um, but you can manage this effectively. And uh, there's a big misnomer here. Like a lot of people think that their self talk should always be positive, and that's not true. Um, self-talk from a performance orientation, generally, if it's neutral or positive, it is more helpful. You want to avoid negative self-talk where you're telling yourself how terrible of a human you are or how weak you are, you know, any of those things like that is not helpful. Even if it feels like it's motivating you in the moment, you're reinforcing negative feedback loops. Um, and it tends to be destructive in the long run and you're minimizing who you are and like how you think of yourself as a human being, uh, which is not helpful from feeling okay about who you are as a person, uh, which, you know, we kind of gets down a different rabbit hole here, but like that is a big part of emotional regulation is being okay with who you are as a human. Um, and so negative self-talk amplifies the idea that you're not good enough, which then reduces your capacity for emotional regulation. Um, so self-talk in general should be neutral or positive. And this is honestly where like humor is super helpful. Like, uh, most people that I've been around who are like Craig and I do this all the time, actually, like whenever we like are especially in pain doing hard workouts, it's like, we find it extremely funny. we like laugh hysterically at each other when like based on the reaction that we're having in a really difficult moment. And it's not that you're being mean to the person. It is actually like genuinely funny. Like your mean spirited humor is not helpful. It should actually be funny, but it's a form of perspective taking where you're taking a step back and you're looking at like how ridiculous this is. And I do this all the time with ski mountaineering where I like, I'll be like, just absolutely dying. Like I'm like, try, say I'm trying to like boot up a couloir, like a steep mountain face. And I'm just like wading up to my snow, like up to my hips and snow and I'm soaked and I'm cold and it's windy and it's absurd and it's taking forever. And you're like, super tired you've been up since 3 a.m and all the things right and then i just like zoom out and i imagine somebody on the ridge line just watching me do this ridic ridiculous task so i can slide down the mountain on a piece of plastic you know like it, and it's like it's so funny to me like i literally will like laugh hysterically like a like a loon but then it immediately pulls me out of like my moment of suffering and pain um and so you can see humor and the absurdity of situations and it's legitimately funny um and it's, it's very very helpful and it's kind of the the next element of that is learned optimism optimism is a big part of your self-talk if you believe that you are going to be successful and that you have what it takes to overcome the thing it's like a form of growth mindset essentially where setbacks and obstacles are no longer a big deal you're like well that's that's normal that's part of the deal i'm feeling this thing and it's not that big a deal i expected to feel this way and I'm optimistic that I am a capable, competent human being, which gets back to the idea of not having negative self-talk. Negative self-talk reinforces this idea of I am not good enough. Learned optimism is kind of the opposite of that. Again, it's not being unrealistic. It's not toxic positivity where you're just not facing reality, right? But it's just understanding like, oh, this is uncomfortable or I'm uncomfortable or this is difficult. It's just not that big a deal. 
Yeah, and, and this this is where I'd, I'd love to, especially at this last point, love to inter, interject with just my um, kind of some of my experience as a, as a physical therapist and managing folks in chronic pain. I think that uh, there, I love that you just called it toxic positivity. I think there is a lot of people that have either neutral or slightly negative self-talk that then get even more critical that they don't have perpetually positive self-talk. And I think this is where like temperament kind of comes in. I think there's some people that truly are natural optimists where you can steer them into this set of conditions where their their self-talk is positive like 98% of the time. Notice like it's still not 100, but it's, it's a lot of the time. But I think most of us sort of are in this realm of, you know, realists or like we get negative at times and learning to steer that self-talk in a little bit more of a, it's like a positive bend, but knowing that it's not always going to be the most positive and that's okay. Or even having that discussion, like you brought up earlier of being process oriented versus outcome oriented. I think in, in terms of self-talk, a lot of times people will say like, Oh, I'm 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 you know sure that this bad thing is going to happen, um, which it may or may not, and frankly, it's not useful either way. But if we can replace that with a, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that I have the wherewithal to respond as ably as I possibly can. To me, that seems incredibly useful to empower a patient, to empower an athlete. Um, again, to an earlier point, to give them a sense of control over essentially the, the uncontrollable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and a big part of it too, is you can separate your feelings from your identity, right? So when you're self-talk a lot of the times, you're not saying like, oh, I am tired or I am in pain or oh, this hurts a lot. Like, no, I'm feeling this way. Like I am feeling really tired. I'm feeling this intense burning station, but it's not who you are as a person. It's just something you're experiencing. It's like the weather. You can be really cold and that's it. Like you're like, oh, it's cold out today. I'm cold. Okay next right like it's kind of the same thing like you can acknowledge the thing without it needing to be who you are as a person or in that moment and that's a really healthy way of you're not ignoring like this is your reality but i can deal with this i can move past this and that's the how you from an emotional intelligence perspective that's a big part of it is separating just like thoughts emotions are things that you experience right they're just ways of explaining the world they're not deviations from rash out rationality. Um, they're just explanations of what you're experiencing and you don't want to ignore those things, but you also don't need to amplify them. You can feel them, understand it. Okay. This is what I'm feeling. What does that mean? Where's this coming from? Great. And then you can move on with the day. Like you can be simultaneously a little bit sad or lethargic or bored or any of these other things and not let it negatively impact what you're doing or your how you're interacting with the world. Yeah, very well said. So, I mean, I think, you know, by my count, you mentioned uh, five skills. I was kind of jotting down as, as, as you went through them. So I have mindfulness slash attention, segmenting, compartmentalizing, self-talk meditation, and learned optimism. I'm thinking maybe we can take a couple of those and you can give me sort of like the nitty gritty, like what, what the training, what the preparation for that thing might look like for one of your clients? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, segmenting is a big one. So it'd be you go on a run and you intentionally just break it down into chunks, whatever feels reasonable, right? Like as you're doing your activity, you oscillate between 
focusing on the task at hand. Maybe you're running cues, maybe it's your breathing. Um, and then you're like, okay, I'm just going to make it to the corner there. And then once you get to the corner, you reassess, cool, what's the next point? Now I'm going to make it to this point. And each time you hit that, you kind of intentionally like, yeah, crush it to the corner. Got it. Next point. And then you just shrink your world. Like as you get, say you're doing like a mile for time, right? <laughs> I know you're going to love this one, Tim. Um, and you're just like in the pain cave, right? Like it's bad. Like you're you're like on that last quarter mile. And then you struck. like sometimes you have to shrink the world to like three more steps. Okay, three more. I made it those three. I can make it three more. Okay, three more. Like you just keep shrinking the goalpost into whatever you know you can do. Um, and so that's a big one. Throughout the day, it's the same thing. We use, okay, first thing I have to do this morning, I just got to get out of bed. It's all I have to do. It's all I'm going to worry about. I have to get out of bed when my alarm goes off. Great. Hardest part of the day is over. I'm out of bed. Okay, what's next? I have to get ready for the day. Like whatever it is, like, oh, I have all these meetings today, this huge to-do list. Okay, what's the, what do I have to do right now? Like what, what is my immediate attention? What matters in this moment? Um, it can be in a conversation, right? Like you're going to enter a difficult conversation. You're going to have like a an emotionally or socially challenging situation. It's okay. What, how do I want to start this off? Right? Like what's my introduction? What's the question? What's my intention? Like, what do I want to get out of this? Right. You just break the thing down into these smallest steps. Um, and it's, it's very, very helpful in almost any context. And as you move throughout your day. Yeah. yeah and, and again, I, I yeah, I, I think that's, um, I think that's incredibly helpful for people to hear when I hear you talk about that, what I think of, I mean, even like right now, my own experience with, you know, having hip stuff for the, at this point, the better part of two decades, but, um, I'll roll into the gym and like, I, you know, I, I will not have felt great the first couple hours of that day, but I will see what's on my program for the day. And the game that I play is just get through the mobility stuff. Like just get through the mobility stuff, see how you feel. I get through the mobility stuff. Inevitably, I feel a little bit better. And then I see maybe six sets of, you know, uh, one minute each of like lateral step ups. And it's like, okay, just get to the first two sets. Get to the first two sets. If you feel worse, you've still done something. If you feel better, think about set three and four. And that ability to... Uh, segment, you know, that break things down into segments has certainly led to a lot more successfully completed workouts for, for me and a lot of clients that I manage. But again, to broaden things out to a life context, it's like, this is Michelle and I've talked about this before. I don't know if you and I have ever done this, but like I have this ridiculous post-it note system where I take my entire day's agenda and I put it on a post-it note. And in my mind, it makes it feel small and digestible. And I get to look at that, you know, look at everything that needs to be done in a day circle the two most important things and just focus on those things. And once those have been scratched out, pick the next two. And I found for me, this is sort of a tactile way to say right now I am doing this thing and I'm going to try my best to not be doing anything else. So again, I, I just, I find it really interesting. Like you, you prepare people for these, like, you know, 15 out of 10 experiences of fatigue, of pain, but it really is. It's like the same kind of stuff that gives you enough wherewithal and for lack of a better word, toughness, uh, to make it through day-to-day -day life. Cause life can be freaking hard, man. Yeah, no, I mean, it's the same stuff. Um, do you want me to go over another one? Yeah, yeah, for sure. We got time. All right. I mean, self-talk's a big one. So self-talk is also really informative in the sense that you learn about what your beliefs are, right? Cause so while thoughts are 
outside your control. You know, anyone who's meditated knows this, like crazy stuff will pop up in your head. Like we all have crazy thoughts, right? And you don't act on them. You're like, wow, well, that's where did that come from? Right. So it's not like every thought that you have is based on some, <laughs> this is who I am as a person, right? Like that's a big part of what meditation is separating your identity from your thoughts. Like these thoughts come up and then I can decide whether or not this is how I want to react to this. Like, do I need to go down this uh, rabbit hole? Is this thought reasonable? Is this worth acting upon or is this not, right? There's that, it's basically the gap between stimulus and response. And self-talk is really helpful for this in the sense that you can learn to, uh, I guess, dive in and figure out maybe where that thought, especially like recurring thoughts or patterns that continue to come up. Like, what does this say about my expectations? And expectations is a big part of your stress response. If your expectations are violated, like, so this is how dopamine works, right? Like you have this violated expectations equals a huge drop in uh, dopamine. And so when you go into challenging situations, if you expect to cruise through it and they're outcome oriented things, you're screwed. Like it's never going to go well. Whereas if they're process oriented things like, oh, my expectation is this is going to be tough, but my expectation is I'm going to manage myself. I'm going to focus on what I can control. I can control my breathing. I can segment. I can compartmentalize. I can control my self-talk. I cannot overreact. I cannot have an emotional response to the physical sensation that I'm feeling of pain and fatigue, right? Those are process oriented. Those are all within my control. And so your self-talk often tells you a lot about what your predictions are. And then when you adjust your predictions, you become much more skillful at doing difficult things. Now you go into situations with expectations around behaviors that are 100% within your own control. When you do that, you manage your stress response. And when that happens, you don't lose control. You don't have these strong emotional responses to normal situations. You learn how to more skillfully navigate difficulty in any context. It can be physical training. It can be social situations, whatever it is. It's the same stuff. Um, so again, we have people just tune into it. And first, the first step is just awareness. Like, like, what's going on? Like, what are the patterns you're seeing popping up? Like, how do you interact with this thing? And then... You build mantras, right? Like what are helpful mantras? Even if it's just neutral, like song lyrics can be super helpful. This is why training with like endurance training with music is super helpful. It just shifts your attention, right? And sometimes it's positive. Sometimes it's neutral, but it just gets your attention out of your own head, fixating on how tired or fatigued you are, right? Uh, soft people, when you're in selection, you don't get you don't get your favorite playlist and, and headphones, right? So, so like you're just in your own head for like extended period of time. And not only that, it, a lot of them, they're like, it's a constant barrage of negative feedback. It's part of what makes them so hard. Soft selection courses is that there's a never ending stream of negative feedback or just no feedback at all. Um, anyways, but you can, so you have to learn how to manage your own experience, right? Because you have no external input. So it becomes a hundred percent about what is happening in my head? I have to manage myself because no one else is going to help me do this. Um, and so again, you have to just learn the patterns and then we have default kind of go-tos, right? Like when things are starting to get really hard and like you're in a lot of pain or fatigue and you're in that dark spot, just go to neutral, like lyrics, like what are some song lyrics that you can go to that just shift your attention away from that intense sensation, right? When it's a little bit more ongoing and you have more time to be present and can adjust, then maybe it becomes a, a positive or that's where you can inject the humor and like shift back if you have a little bit more cognitive bandwidth for those things. But again, notice the patterns, 
And then after that, you identify, what does this tell me about my beliefs? What does this tell me about my expectations going into things? Yeah, I think back to uh, back on season one, we had a strength and conditioning coach named Todd Bumgardner on. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all. But... Yeah, we work with Todd. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, and the, the question we always used to ask our guests uh, early in the podcast was, what was the last workout that you did? And uh, his was the wildest answer that season. He's like, I dragged a sled laterally for 45 minutes with no music. Uh, and at the time I, I was like, I can't imagine. He's like, no, no, no. It's like that, that because it's insane is why I wanted to do it. Like he wanted to learn to manage kind of like the boredom, the tedium and to differentiate between like, I'm just bored and a little tired and like, I need to change something right now. And I think about that probably like once a week, like the, the brilliance of something like that. I've walked in the gym, uh, where you're in there before, you know, where you're in there and you're on like minute 35 of some ridiculous zone two session on like the Jacob's ladder and, you know, no music just in your own head. Um, I'm curious with what you just said, like in terms of actual strategies and tactics, like, is it's, is it something where you will have these candidates do some kind of meditation to tune into what their internal monologue sort of is? And then they'll like, like, are there specific exercises there or are these just sort of conversations that pop up? Uh, yeah, I mean, we basically break them down typically into daily mental skills. So we just give them like a cue ahead of time, like, hey, you're going into your workout during your workout. This is what you're going to do. Like, and we always thread like a big part of this is getting you into the right ideal kind of headspace going in. Like breathing work is always a part of our thing, which is always a good opportunity to regulate your nervous system and get your head into a space where you're like, can do that. Right. Like, so you usually get people into their bodies doing movement work. Um, and some breathing work ahead of time that helps regulate themselves. So then they're more capable of like attuning to what's happening in their mind and then off to go and then just give them those cues. And then afterwards you have them, what was happening in your head? How did you manage that? Again, what were your beliefs? What were your stuff? And what the thing is over time, it's like any skill, you get better at it, right? So if you analyze what your beliefs and your expectations are, and then you adjust those the next time, your self-talk changes over time and your thoughts change over time. You just like have less negative thoughts. Like you literally do because you're changing your belief system. You're changing still crazy things. You still like, screw this. I don't want to do this anymore. That's all that stuff doesn't happen. It's just, it happens less often. And then you're like, oh, well, I've, yeah. Okay, great. That doesn't matter. Normal thought next, like, right. And then you just like shift your attention or you have your mantra or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think to, uh, you know, people in chronic pain that sort of seek me out. And I think I initially slide into the role of sort of like their external nervous system, right? It's like, like I'm, I'm project managing their pain and sort of giving them more useful thoughts or action items with what they're feeling. Yeah. And then the thing that I'm always trying to develop is, uh, you know, a client, a patient, an athlete that is, able to generate their own productive steps and productive thoughts from from what they're feeling. So, I mean, by way of example, it's like, you know, I'll have a person come in saying, yeah, I haven't worked out in three months because my back hurts. And, you know, we, we slowly just tease that apart. It's like, okay, well, does your back hurt the same at every hour of every day? Are there certain activities that it seems to tolerate better or worse? And again, to your point, it's like gradually by trying to interact with that same stimulus but in slightly different ways then it's like that same person six or nine months down the road is 
Oh yeah, I woke up. Uh, my back kind of hurt, but you told me that you know you told me never do nothing. So I went to the gym. I did some mobility stuff. It still kind of hurt. So I did some body weight lunges instead of my safety bar squats. And I I still got a sweat in. I still got a workout in. I still got the dopamine hit from checking the box. And to me, that's like you know I love to hear that. It's like okay, you're probably ready to fire me because this was yeah. this was the only thing I've ever been really trying to get with you was out of this mindset of a thing hurts. So I'm going to do nothing uh, until I find the right person to make it not hurt. Yeah. So I mean, we have a bunch of mantras. So like one of them is like quit tomorrow. Like oh, I can just quit tomorrow. All I have to do is make it through today. Right. Um, and that's a big one in selection. Right. Like it's like, oh, this is bad. Oh, well, I, I can quit as long as I make it through today. Then tomorrow I can just stop. Right. And then you get to tomorrow and you're like, well, I can't quit today. Right. Like I feel OK again. Um uh on be an honest dog. Like we have this whole we we send them a story about like in the Iditarod, one of the ways they um identify dogs, they call them honest dogs, or the dogs that will pull. Like and there's other dogs, no matter what, no matter how tired they are. And there's other dogs, sled dogs that will just like just pull hard enough to not have slack in the line, but aren't actually driving all the time. So it's like one of the things that people like resonate with, like, oh, I'm gonna like put out, I'm gonna like honestly give everything I have not just like go through the motions, right? Um, uh, pay the man is like another one. Like you just like, that's like a way you have to like put in the work to earn the outcome, right? Like, so when people show up to soft selection, a big part of what we try to get to people is like, this is a job interview. You're not trying out, They're not like, oh, I like you as a person. We're going to keep you on the team. It's like, have you earned this? Like, do you have the capacity to do this? So like, you got to pay the man now and so when you show up to selection, you know, you've earned it. You're literally just performing well in an interview. That's all it is. Um, yeah. It doesn't matter. It's a big one. Like I, I oh, love the, I love the, I love the quit tomorrow. Cause it's an inversion of the typical refrain of people that are procrastinating. Right. It's like, it's like, I'll, it's like, I'll start tomorrow or I'll start next week. And I know for me personally, in my journey, it's like any time I catch myself pulling that, means that I need to do that thing now because it means that that thing matters because if it didn't matter, it wouldn't be scaring me. So it's like, it's automatically when I start to think about that stuff, it's like, no, no, you don't start tomorrow. You don't start next month. You don't get to put a thing on your Google calendar to remind you to do this in eight weeks. It's like, if it scares you, that's your, that's your mind trying to tell you it probably matters. Maybe it's not an action item, but uh, I think it's a good marker of salience. And it's like, you, you do that thing now. So I just love that. Like if you're in it, you quit tomorrow. You can always quit tomorrow, but yeah. you're in it now. That's uh, beautiful. So, I mean, and everyone has all kinds of these ones. I mean, another one we do a lot is trying is lying. So this kind of gets the you either do the thing or you don't do the thing, right? Like, yeah, because trying is oftentimes one of the ways that people uh, like cop out from like actually giving their their absolute most their best effort. And so we frame this positively, but again, a lot of the time is like. If you're in the thing, you're like, oh, I'm trying to go faster. Like, no, you either are or you aren't. And that's okay if you can't go faster, but like trying is irrelevant, right? Like this is about your approach, right? Like objectively what's happening right now. But try to separate yeah. yourself from your emotional response to the thing, right? It's like another one is pain is feeling that we put meaning into. And so like pain by itself is just a sensation, right? And then you add meaning to that. And that's what makes it like way worse, right? That's the difference between being in pain without suffering, right? So it's just like trying to skip the step between I can be in pain and uncomfortable, but I don't need to attach meaning to this. It's It doesn't mean that something bad is happening. It just means that I'm in pain. 
Yeah, for sure. And this is actually, uh, I'm, I'm recording one of these with a mental health therapist later in the week, but that's sort of like the thing that we're really going to dive into. Um, and again, not to make this like a personal therapy session or anything, but for me, you know, like my hip has never felt worse than it currently does, which sucks. However, I've never felt more stable with that psychologically because I've learned to remove all of the associations that I had even as recently as like this past winter where it was like, oh, I just need to figure this thing out so I can get back to backcountry skiing next month or so I can get back to playing pickup ultimate Frisbee or, and it was putting, it was, you know, kind of enforcing these timetables, these expectations, this, oh, I'm going to be doing that thing there. And then inevitably, if I miss that time marker, it would be this cascade of, you know, of guilt, of uh, just wholesale negative feelings. But being able to put everything to the side and just say like, no, I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to do a little bit of strength training, I'm going to do a little, little bit of climbing. And this is going to take however long it takes, for me has been such a uh, profound decrease in the amount of suffering and mental anguish even without a con- concomitant decrease in the amount of physical pain. So yeah. it just, you know, that, that uh, the duality of those things has always been very, very interesting to me that I, I think the most unhappy, depressed, anxious people, like all of those tend to be uh, psychological in nature. Like they tend to be future oriented or past obsessed. Uh, they tend not to be in the here and now. And I think you're, you've said the same thing in a lot of different ways throughout this conversation. Yeah, that's it. Ultimately, that's what it is. It's being present in the moment. And most people, when they want to quit, it's because they are uh, amplifying something because they are not, they're focusing on what this means about their future, or what this means about who they are as a person or relating it to some past experience instead of just experiencing the thing. Um, yeah, and that's ultimately what it comes down to. The better... And the more time we can get people to just be fully focused and present on whatever they're doing, they just, you become so much more capable, right? Like, because now time isn't such as obsession, Um, external things kind of fade away and you oftentimes the quality of your efforts amplify dramatically. Um, And then obviously you just become more capable as a result. Let's say, I know we're kind of, we're coming up on time here, but um, we've been dancing around one topic, I think for the past 30 or 40 minutes. And I'd kind of be curious to get your, your personal take on it, as well as if it's a tool that you explicitly use for your clients. But um, can you talk a little bit more about meditation? Like it it seems like this is something that might fit in with the, with the schema of what you recommend towards your clients, but I haven't heard that you outright recommend it for your clients. So, I mean, any thoughts of that, like in terms of utilization for you as an athlete or uh, the people pre-selection? Yeah. I mean, I definitely use it. And I think that any person who is, their life is a little more complex. I find it to be more and more important. So in other words, if you're not 20 and your life doesn't revolve around becoming really fit and going to a soft selection, right? Um, because you have far more competing demands the older you get and the more responsibilities you have. You have a family, uh, you have professional obligations. Like you oftentimes are juggling far more things and you're far more aware of those things. We, it's not that we don't want our 20 year olds to meditate, but like we kind of know our audience. And if I tell a guy to go meditate for 15 minutes, they're not going to do it. It's just not going to happen. Um, so we build mindfulness the way we do, right. By getting people to just start tuning into their throughout their day, like just start like paying attention to what's happening in your mind, right. In your workout and we prime them before workouts and give them triggers to do that thing. 
Uh, I would say the older you get, again, the more things you have going on, the more important this becomes because it's a lot harder to, at least from my experience, and I, I think most people I know, I would say that as your responsibilities grow, like your mind gets pulled in a lot more directions and it's a lot harder to just be present and in the moment. Um, and that is more complicated to navigate than, you know, the 20 year old who just needs to be really good at being in pain, like doing physically difficult situations, right? Like they just have less things pulling them in less directions typically. Yeah, I, I, that that certainly feels right. That certainly kind of uh, matches what I tend to see with patients in, in my practice. I mean, I think that it is probably something explicitly that I end up recommending a little bit more. And to, to me, the utility feels like, okay, when you have these like uh, successful type A people that have also been in pain for a while, they're successful because they've learned to very quickly take some inputs and generate outputs. And it's almost like life and career and family to some extent incentivize the rapid conversion of information to output action. And I think that where meditation really stands alone in its ability to do this is to cr intentionally create a slight delay between what you're ingesting and then what you ultimately think about it or do about it or say about it. And it's like, I mean, that delay is probably on the, it's on the scale of like a half a second or something. But in my mind, it's during that delay where we have a little bit of malleability of, um, or I should say ability to reframe, to uh, inject maybe different variants of self-talk. But without that, it's like we just kind of become algorithms. Like that's, you know, the hyper-efficient algorithm of like, okay, I my knee felt this way, so that means I'm not going to squat today. Um, yeah. Versus my knee felt this way, however don't do nothing. So maybe I'll think about what I'm going to do in the gym while I'm at the gym. Uh, but this is salient information, but I'm not going to scrap everything. Right. And it probably happens a lot more efficiently than that. Yeah. But um, to me that like, that's where, especially in this context of continuing to train through chronic pain, I feel like it, it ends up being an, an incredibly useful tool. Yeah. I mean, it, there's a couple of things. It's like the moment between stimulus and response, right? Like, do I just respond automatically or am I responding intentionally, right? Am I making a conscious decision of how I want to respond to the stimulus or am I just doing what I did because that's what I did in the past? Um, and that's what meditation does give you the space to do. And that's that mindfulness thing. I think part of it too, is as you get older, you, you don't sleep quite as well. Like you just need more practice learning to regulate yourself and come down, right? Like even younger folks tend to be better at this. They're, they're closer to, the time in their life when they could play um, and it's a lot easier for them to switch back and forth into those modes. I think the older you get and the more rigid you are and the less you spend time playing and just interacting in your environment um, and being fully present in your activities. And that's part of the reason why we talked about this before. When a gym pop clients, I was always like, just get out and do something, anything, like whatever you love doing it, like, but just and be fully present in that thing. Cause it's just so important for what we talked about of the regulation of just learning how to manage yourself and not always be go, go, go. Everything has to have a goal or an output. Like sometimes the experience itself should be the, the point, not, not achieving anything, right? Like when you go spend time with your loved ones, be fully present. Don't be worrying about work. And then when you're at work, you feel bad because you weren't fully present or your relationships aren't going in your personal life, right? Like it's always that, Kind of be fully present in the moment. And then the next thing we talk about this a lot with our people though, it's, it's self-hurting. So it's that tendency. Once you do want something one time, 
it's the inertia. You're more likely to do it again in the future. It's like skill acquisition, essentially, right? But it, it is a psychological phenomenon. This is what I was saying about as you change your self-talk or your analyze those things and change expectations, you're far more likely to do your new response automatically in the future. Um, so your default responses become better and better and better. So we always start the lowest level of stress, kind of like tie it all together is the stress inoculation model, right? You have to do something when it's easy. And then you do something when it's a little bit harder and then a little bit harder. And you slowly are at the edge of your ability, but you try to do that under increasing levels of stress, right? And that means that skill becomes really uh, hardy. It stands up to... I can still do this thing between stimulus and response. I can pause and make a decision of how I want to respond here, even when I'm a little bit stressed. Like even when I'm in traffic and I'm running late and the guy just cut me off and flipped me off, I can be like, oh, I want a road rage. Nope, not going to do it, right? Like, but you can't do that day one just because I, I meditated for 15 minutes, right? So that's where you have to take the meditation and what you're getting out of that and then apply it into like real context and slowly amplify under increasing levels of stress, but always generally being successful. Like we try to keep our people where they're mostly successful. Like we don't want them crushing themselves and just surviving, right? Like the whole goal is to like get more competent. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, I think finding that balance point of stress is probably key to developing in, in just about every facet of life. Um, I, and I think that that probably brings us to a close. Is there anything else that you feel like we didn't touch on that would be, you know, incredibly beneficial for our listeners to hear more about? Um, I, I, I With gin pop people, I said there's two things I was going to kind of bring up that I think are worth revisiting really quickly. Sure. Is it that I noticed, you know, I trained gin pop people for 15 years or something like that. Um, and there's two primary mindsets when people walked in the door. It was that all pain is bad or the productivity of workout is based on how painful it was. And neither of those are true or helpful. Um, neither is productive. Pain is just information, right? As we've talked about over and over and over again, and you can change your relationship with it. Um, but also valuing a workout based on its perceived level of pain means that that's what you fixate on. You're learning to attune to sensations and amplify them. Oh, this is really, really hard. And that means it's good. Well, like that, that's kind of the opposite. And I know that might sound contrary to what we're talking about throughout this whole thing, but our goal with, when we train people for special operations is to objectively have them by the end of their process, do something that they could not even have imagined doing before like a five to eight hour open-ended workout. They don't know what's going to happen, what's next, how long it's going to last, what they're going to have to do. And they employ all these mental skills and they get through it. And they're like, wow, that wasn't that bad. And if we had given them on day one, it would have crushed them. So the goal is to make objectively hard things feel easy. Um, and most people have neither of those men mindsets, they're either in avoidance or they run at the thing, but they fixate on pain. Um, and again, neither is very helpful for building uh, resilience and becoming a more capable human. You, like if you think of bike rides, like when you go do sporting activities, right? Like everyone kind of does this naturally. Like you don't judge how good your uh, pickup basketball game was based on how hard it was. Like it was on your, like the value of the experience itself and exercise should be the same way, right? Like how was this experience? Like, was I, did I become more capable, but it like psychologically didn't feel more difficult for me. That should be the goal. 
yeah, I mean, I think what comes to mind there is like exercise versus training. Like I think when, you know, when I'm, when I'm in the initial stages of program design with someone that hasn't trained in many years because of chronic pain or because of some movement restriction, the first thing that I try to get them to kind of clue in on is that we want to objectively increase something over this four week training cycle. It could be the number of steps that you're doing, the load that you're using, repetitions, might even be like the feel of the exercise, the range of motion, but something that isn't just the somatic sensation of like, does the thing hurt or not? Because in my opinion, if the thing hurts to the same degree, but you can do a lot more stuff, that's a pretty successful outcome that most people should jump at. So I, I yeah, I mean, I love that you brought it up. I, the, I, I think back to this first coffee meeting that we had. Um, and at the time I was just starting to get back into like competitive CrossFit type stuff. This was like eight years ago after, after hip surgery, number two, before number three. Um, but I was, I was, we were talking about that and you were like, yeah, you know, I, I, I think the goal should be how little training do I need in order to do this output? The goal should never be how much training can I accumulate? And for me, it was like you grabbed a pie and just chucked it right at my face. Because <laughs> I because I think that it, that was the first time in my life where I didn't think of training volume as the end-all be-all goal. And now it just seems so obvious. I mean, the amount of like runners that come to me and are just like, I want to be able to run 80 miles a week and just got to dig a little bit. Like, okay, why? And then you ask a couple more why questions. And pretty soon you start to unravel this very tenuous framework they had of uh, I'm a good person if I run 80 miles a week, or I'll be a successful athlete if I run 80 miles a week, which is just as ridiculous as what you mentioned with the gen pop clients of like, nope, pain doesn't matter. Run right into a wall or, oh, nope, it's, it's pain. Like we want to make this thing hurt or else it's not going to work. Yeah. 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 No, it's really, I mean, you, you summarize that quite nicely, but yeah, I, it's difficult. It's at, you see this a lot in like amateur mediocre athletes and in part of it, it doesn't matter. Like I've been doing a lot of gravel biking. I moved to Montana and gravel biking endurance scenes, a big thing. Um, and then people want to go on group rides. And the problem with group rides is um, it's like a training ride for some people. And it's like a performance for other people. Um, and it's like, Oh, let's do this amount of verb or this distance or whatever it is. Right. And I'm like, okay, that's appropriate for like, three of you and I'm over here just dying. I'm just like literally dying. And I have like a pretty good endurance base, but like me, me and the gravel bike, that's just not, we're not friends. It's just not, not where I thrive. Um, and so I've had to like intentionally be like, I just like literally, like, I got to do a group ride, like maybe once every two to four weeks where I'm just going out and I'm okay getting smashed. Right. But otherwise this is like kind of unproductive because I just go out and crush myself, but I'm not actually really training. I'm just like doing the hard thing to do the hard thing. And, and again, sometimes that's fine. I just accept that if, when I go to do that, I'm there for the experience, not for the training aspect, right? But yeah, it's for sure. It's like, a, lines. it's like a 22 mile hike, like, you know, a mountain pass traverse thing is not a training thing. Yeah. It's something that you're just trying to survive. And hopefully you brought enough training, you brought enough adaptation to the start of it to survive it. Um, but you're not going to be actually pushing any adaptation when you're doing the thing. Cool, man. Well, uh, I'm I'm thinking, I'm hoping that our listeners got some value out of this exercise. Again, I just I, I find it really interesting the transferability of some of these mental skills to not even the chronic pain context, just kind of like the life context. Like I, I think we talked a lot about 
the value of doing hard things and the uh, the ability or the capacity to reframe those hard things as challenges to be surmounted or experiences to be learned from instead of things to be uh, a bludgeon to smash one's one's head in with uh, or something to be you know, completely run away from. Yeah. And I, I just think the one thing to hammer home outside of all the mental skills is it's about your experience, right? Like it is not about the outcome. Like a lot of people are chasing outcomes. So they're like, oh, I'm going to go do this hundred mile race. I'm going to do this Spartan thing, whatever it is. Right. And they're fixated on the outcome of finishing the race or going a certain distance or whatever it is. And that can be part of your building up to doing harder and harder things. But it's about how you experience that thing. If you experience the thing that was previously really hard for you and you manage it a lot more effectively, it's far more meaningful and that has a lot more value in your life than just going out and objectively crushing your soul because you need to prove that you're a worthwhile human being. Like that is never a sustainable approach. I call that the uh, Chris McDougal, you know, born to run school of running versus the David Goggins school of running, <laughs> where it's just like, how much pain can I eat versus what is the experience of the thing? And those have uh, long term, probably dramatically different outcomes, too. Yeah, I mean, and the funny thing is, it's you become mentally tough by tuning into your experience. It's not that like Goggins stuff, there's some things of value there. But, um, but yeah, it's just a different experience. John, I want to I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Um, if people want to learn more about building the elite, or maybe they're you know considering going into some kind of preparation, where can they find out more? Uh, yeah, you can find us at buildingtheelite.com uh, or on Instagram. That's our primary social media medium. We do four to five posts a week. A lot of the content stuff like you heard here. Our book is also available on Amazon, and we have a podcast also building the elite podcast. And that would be on all podcast hosts. And again, we dive into a lot of these mental, emotional uh, type topics. We talk about training a decent amount as well. And again, it, it our niche is special operations prep, but we work with individuals across the spectrum. You know, like one step out would be like police law enforcement, people just who are currently operational in the military um, and just high stress occupations in general. Yeah, and I can I can speak as a consumer of your audio content. Um, I find the episodes uh, easy to listen to, very informative. I like that a lot of them are kind of rather bite sized, sort of the opposite of what Michelle and I do here. Um, but like I've, I've sent, I forget which episode, but you did one on um, kind of some of the topics that we had just discussed, like like needing to adapt to exercise versus just exercising for the sake of exercise. And that's probably one of the podcast episodes I've sent to clients the most over the past year, just incredibly useful and an incredibly uh, helpful paradigm shift for people. Awesome. Thanks, man. I'm not sure which episode that was, but if I can, I'll, I'll dig it up and link it in the show notes. All right, man. Uh, again, appreciate you taking the time and good to hear from you as always. Yeah, it's great to catch up. If you're enjoying what Michelle and I are putting together here, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a review on your pod player of choice. Reviews help us climb the rankings, which improves our ability to help more coaches and therapists continue to push our industry and knowledge base forward. The intro and outro music for More Train, Less Pain was produced by Jacob Azurdia. You can find out more about his music by visiting his Instagram page, J underscore Z-U-R-D-I-A. Thanks for listening. Oh,